Hello, and welcome to What's Next, a podcast where we explore the technology of tomorrow and what it means for us today. I'm your host, Ryan Lawler. 50 million Americans have asthma or another pulmonary condition, and that number is only increasing. Today, I'm speaking with Cohero Health founder Melissa Manis about how her company helps patients breathe easier by tracking their lung capacity and medication adherence over time. Welcome to What's Next, Melissa. Thanks for having me. So how about just to get started, you tell me what is Cohero Health and what do you do? Yeah, so Cohero Health is a smart respiratory care company and we're transforming respiratory care through smart mobile technology with the goal of optimizing diagnosis, care coordination and care management, um, and improving overall patient health for those impacted by a pulmonary condition. Okay. And how do you do that? Like what are the pieces that come together that enable you to improve care? Absolutely. So when we say sort of smart mobile technology, that's comprised of two proprietary wireless devices, one that's able to diagnose and screen um, lung function. All mobile handheld can be used at the point of care, um, so in a physician practice or in the home. And then the other are our proprietary uh, medication adherence solution, also a wireless Bluetooth energy powered device. And those are sort of universal fit to fit all the different sort of shapes and sizes of medication inhalers for those with asthma and COPD um, with the end goal of really trying to drive proactive compliance to treatment plan, as well as giving real-time insights on uh, response to therapy via lung function. Okay. So just to break that down into different parts, you have the hardware. Absolutely. Um, so what's that hardware look like? Like where are the actual pieces of hardware that people are using? Yeah. So the first piece of hardware um, we call the Hero Tracker is a flexible piece of silicone, wraps around um, the patient's medication, has a little sensor that captures medication utilization, and then pairs wirelessly with a patient's smartphone of any kind. And then the uh, mobile spirometer is really trying to take what is currently sort of a large phone booth type system in a pulmonary practice and reduce it to um, something that is smaller than your smartphone. And so miniaturizing that, but um, that's a device that's also wireless and a patient exhales into a spirometer and it captures a full sort of set of pulmonary function parameters, but really with the end goal of connecting patients in an unprecedented way to their entire care team. Okay. So you have these different pieces of hardware. What types of data are they collecting? So we call them digital biomarkers. So the types of data they're collecting are what are critical to understand whether a patient's responding well to therapy, but also the types of data that are really needed to drive sort of compliance to treatment plan. Some other pieces of data that we capture that are really critical are what we call sort of disease triggers, so environmental data um, and other elements. But again, sort of with this holistic snapshot for the pulmonary patient community, so the types of biomarkers that are sort of critical to driving optimized outcomes for that patient population. So you are collecting all of this data, and then uh, on the back end, what do you do with it? So we like to say that digital health in general, but really Cohero Health's mission, is really allowing for a shift from sort of a reactive care model to a proactive care model. And what that means is that you can sort of intervene all of a sudden in real time if a patient's at risk of an acute event. So an acute event being hospitalized, for example, with a patient with asthma. And so what we do with that data 
is intervene uh, or allow the patient to be engaged on the front end, educate them about sort of how to optimize their sort of treatment plan, but but really importantly also connecting them to caregivers and their care team um, with really the intention of allowing for sort of real-time insights so that a provider, if necessary, can sort of intervene um, before a patient's been hospitalized. Okay. And do you have mobile apps for patients or how are you engaging with them? So um, currently it's all mobile app based on Android and iOS, also tablet based. And so we really are trying to be sort of agnostic to age, be able to sort of connect and visualize data. And so we've decided that uh, a smartphone is something that most patients don't leave their home without, but um, we are not currently offering sort of sensor-based connectivity to a non-smartphone-based system. So when you talk about patient engagement on these mobile devices, what are the regulations that you have to keep in mind with health information and how do you make sure that you're HIPAA compliant, for example? So I think first and foremost, you hit it that HIPAA compliance is something that we all think about, but um, ensuring and, and ensuring that it's not just HIPAA compliant from the connectivity of device to app, but the entire ecosystem. So we like to think that sometimes the key to many of these solution sets is to be interoperable. And so when we think about HIPAA compliance, that might be from the device connected to an app connected to our backend pushed into the electronic medical record. So we sort of think end-to-end data security. So that's sort of critical. And then there's sort of emerging both U.S.-based and sort of global requirements for data security. Um, GDPR is one. So those are the kinds of things that I think we like to think about from the point of view of PHI, so personal health information, and ensuring that we stay compliant from Cohero front end all the way to back end um, systems as well. Okay. So we've been talking a lot about how the patient uses this data in these devices. What happens on the physician or, or care provider end of things? Yeah. So the types of data that we generate from the patient facing what we call our Breeze Smart um, application, all the data is what is sort of grounded in clinical guidelines as being able to profile whether patients at risk of an acute event. And so on the back end, what we do is we basically allow for sort of risk profiling based on sort of an aggregate view of, of a patient cohort, et cetera, but all of this patient-generated data. And so what a provider sees is sort of, in in our case, red, yellow, green zone based on a patient sort of risk um, threshold of all of this data. So we try and make it very clinician-centered. So um, ours is sort of razor-focused on the data that we collect on our application and pushing that into a really easy-to-digest dashboard for them. So help me understand the size of the problem that Cohere is trying to solve. How many people are affected by these conditions and how big is this health problem? So um, in the U.S., it's about 50 million Americans with asthma or COPD um, and about 300 million worldwide with prevalence increasing every year. So it is a, a leading chronic condition in both this country uh, as well as globally. And I say leading being both asthma and COPD. So environmental factors being both uh, indoor and outdoor air quality and other aspects have really both um, are seen to drive both incidents of 
these conditions, but also exacerbate these conditions. So when we think of what are the opportunities with an application on a patient engagement side, it's to educate on what are your triggers, what are the kinds of things that you can do in your indoor home environment to kind of remediate or improve risk of an exacerbation. So one of those is um, roaches, dust mites, smoke exposure, et cetera, in the indoor home environment. And then in the outdoor environment, some of the types of data that we capture are pollen is a, is a huge trigger. But um, in urban environments, things like proximity of patients' proximity to um, things like bus depots and so forth. Got it. How do patients actually find out about Cohero? Is this something where um, your doctor recommended or are people searching for things online? Like, how do they come across your products and how do you start to build a relationship with them? Um, they're informed or finding us through their physicians and some of those other sort of trusted um, stakeholders in um, in their sort of own care ecosystem. So that includes programs in our case with um, pharmacy benefits managers, so PBM programs, health systems, payers. We work directly with um, life science and pharmaceutical companies powering uh, clinical research. So generally, patients are finding us through our own B2B partners. Let's actually talk a little bit more about the technology and the data that you're collecting. Can you break that down into the, the types of data that you collect and what it's telling you about the patient and uh, about their triggers and respiratory health? Yeah. So when we a patient presents themselves in clinic and they've had been hospitalized in the last year and they have an asthma diagnosis, we try and assess that sort of what we would call a refractive patient. We're trying to assess whether they're non-compliant to their treatment plan or whether they're not benefiting therapeutically from their treatment plan. And the way in which we currently isolate that kind of clinical decision tree is to ask a whole bunch of sort of self-reported surveys on medication compliance, et cetera. And then we collect lung function sporadically during their sort of clinical touch points in clinic. So, what we do at Cohero is basically take that same sort of data structure, but make it much more objective, right? Not based on patient self-report. So collect medication utilization data, collect lung function data, but collect it in real time. So collect it passively as the patient's living their daily life. Um, and with the same intention for a provider of detecting that signal. And so that signal being whether they're at risk of an event based on lung function decline. We know that patients, in our case, are generally about 30% compliant to their treatment plan, to their daily therapy. And what is needed to prevent an exacerbation is to be about 80% compliant. So what we really try and do is, again, take that data we're collecting and remind the patient proactively to comply their treatment plan, educate them on why that's important. But ultimately, a key piece is really, again, to sort of drive both real-time insights for the providers, but give a patient sort of a meaningful tool to drive sort of compliance. Right. And when you talk about ensuring compliance, you you mean actually instead of having the patient self-report, having the device on their medication to tell you when they've taken it? Absolutely. That's the sort of objective piece is to know sort of in real time the patient's taking it as they're living their life administering medication rather than sort of sporadically relying on self-report. 
And on the flip side, if they're not compliant, you can send them a push notification or something. Absolutely. That's a key piece is really um, in the same way that I don't remember to make a meeting if it's not in, in my calendar, in my phone. We're really trying to sort of drive sustained sort of longitudinal behavior change by reminding, tracking, engaging in real time. What sort of data do you have to show that this works in terms of improved health outcomes? Yeah, so um, maybe it's because of my background sort of coming out of clinical medicine, but we have really sort of evolved the BreathSmart platform being sort of grounded in showing outcomes. And so some of the types of outcomes that we've sort of been able to demonstrate are about a 45% lift on average in daily medication compliance. What that correlates to is a significant reduction in hospitalization. So we've done that in both clinical trials. We've done that in what we would call our real-world evidence base, which is just our patient users living their daily lives. And then another key piece is that we're tracking their decline in their emergency medication. So what we call rescue use and what we're seeing is about a 95% drop in rescue use for patients that are using the Restart platform. So those are the kind of types of outcomes data that we've demonstrated in a variety of sort of clinical and commercial programs. And then another key piece, a portion of both our current evidence base and kind of as as we are growing is to connect that to cost data. So really trying to connect to cost containment data. You know, when we determine what works over time in medicine, uh, a lot of it's done through a certain amount of limited clinical trials over time. Right. But when you're collecting data on an ongoing basis for a number of patients over an extended period of time, um, then can you abstract out that anonymized data and create better health outcomes over time using it than you might through, you know, sort of that limited clinical trial. A hundred percent. So one of the really exciting applications of Coherus technology is just that. It's this idea of sort of a real world clinical trial. The notion that instead of having the sort of current clinical trial environment where, like you said, it's sort of sporadic piece of data, that it's much more powerful to have continuous longitudinal data that's captured remotely in a patient's home. What we found in powering that type of that sort of new model of research is that it also improves elements like patient retention, right? Because patient satisfaction on a clinical trial, it's much easier to stay on a clinical trial, for example, when you're doing it in the home rather than having to go every four or eight weeks to a site for data collection. Um, but I think that that's exactly it, is that it can absolutely advance innovation, new drugs coming to market, et cetera. Okay. And what are the biggest challenges to adoption? So I would say in terms of a big challenge for us to adoption, certainly reimbursement is critical. We like to think that we're in this sort of uh, adolescent years of sort of a shift from a fee-for-service model to sort of a changing, at least in the U.S., changing care delivery model towards a value-based care model. And so I think that can be challenging when you're sort of uh, between payment structures, if you will. Right. And when you talk about being in this space that is so highly regulated, it, it's got to be scary just in terms of 
you know, whether or not something will work and then going through all of the clinical trials and everything that you need to do to be compliant um, and then have to make sure that you're HIPAA compliant. Yeah. Um, so it's just there seems to be all these additional layers of challenges that maybe a consumer facing mobile app would have to go through. Yeah, it's it's not just about being passionate when you're trying to innovate in healthcare, but it's really trying to understand that at the end of the day, the uh, regulatory requirements are there for a reason, but they can be very challenging when you're trying to grow and evolve and you're doing all of this on often very limited capital. So I do agree that I think some of the challenges to growing, scaling, getting adoption, et cetera, are so, so different. Uh, than maybe a consumer tech company, but certainly is sort of a fun chicken egg game often for that reason. Because at the end of the day, when you're sort of raising your first round, you need to show revenue traction. Well, you can't show revenue traction unless you have regulatory clearance and you can't get rid So it is, uh, it is certainly a fun challenge in um, the sort of healthcare ecosystem. So let's talk about you. What were you doing before Cohero? Oh, How gosh. did you get into the tech world? Oh man. Um, so my PhD is in pulmonary medicine and bioinformatics. And so I am certainly a first time entrepreneur founded Cohero because I felt that instead of spending a lifetime studying a well documented and costly problem in circles, that I felt that there was a need to so build and scale a meaningful solution. And so I, I guess made the leap from academic medicine to founding Cohero. Well, I'm kind of curious how how you go from academics to entrepreneurship and how you meet your co-founders and build a team and um, how you've gone across that entrepreneurial journey. Yeah, I think in many ways, gosh, that entrepreneurial journey, I think um, in a way I was quite lucky. I did my PhD at Mount Sinai and was also working full time at Sinai as I was finishing my PhD and I think had some phenomenal colleagues and collaborators at Sinai who sort of urged me to try and build an, an early MVP. Um, and then I was lucky enough to then apply for a fellowship to basically then test this kind of what you'd call version, I guess I'd call version ugly point oh, but certainly V1.0 of this sort of smart platform. And then I came back to Sinai to test and validate it through a fellowship. So in many ways, I think then trying to build a team, it's challenging when you're bootstrapping because, of course, you're trying to sort of raise your first round of capital to build a team. And so you have, I was fortunate enough to have a co-founder who was willing to kind of make the leap independent of us having raised our seed round. So it's been an exciting ride, both in the sort of building a team, but certainly in uh, when we were in our early days where it was sort of, a, you know, myself and my co-founder, Dan. So was there an aha moment where you said, this is something that's missing in this space, or we could treat these conditions better if we had more data um, and these are ways in which we could collect that data. Like what was the trigger point for you to determine that this is something that needed to come to market? Yeah, so I think it was a combination of of sort of academic and professional experiences, both in um, a clinical encounter setting from the sort of pain point shared by colleagues, um, et cetera. One of the aspects that I would say that I sort of urge those who come out of 
seeing patients each and every day is that they really understand the pain points quite well. And so I think that sometimes, whether it's a physician or a researcher or what have you, or a patient, um, that sometimes those can be the best people to innovate because they're sort of living those aha moments every day. Certainly, I would say in my case, it was sort of grounded in the sort of pulmonary pain points that I sort of had experienced in my training. So if you weren't doing this, and I, I think that this is a big question for you because I feel like your what you're doing now comes so much from, you know, your clinical experience. Yeah. Um, but if you weren't solving this problem, is there something else that you would be working on? Yeah. So I think, you know, in my early days, I would have said, well, I really only have domain expertise in this one little spot. And so me solving for this is is really uh, probably the best place for me. And so maybe that's still true a little bit. But if you were to ask sort of if I weren't doing Cohero each and every day, I would say this whole journey has sort of taught me just how much I love being a problem solver. So really mentoring and jumping into um, a company that's in its sort of infancy at what I call napkin stage is where I love to be. So that to me is what sort of fuels my fire. I love that no two days are the same and it's scrappy and requires sort of a, a lot of persistence and passion. So whether that another venture would be joining on an existing team or starting another company, gosh, I I don't know, but but certainly love being a problem solver. Right. How will the future be different if Cohero becomes ubiquitous. Yeah, gosh, I like think back to the our mission statement on our wall of our office that we wrote in our early days that has rung true and that at the end of the day is really to improve patient health um, for those impacted by a pulmonary condition. So I think how will the future be different? Um, uh, for us, it's earlier disease detection, better outcomes, um, better response to treatment, care coordination is improved, and that's from uh, provider to patient. That's from caregiver to patient. That's the sort of future that we'd like to see. So what's one controversial opinion you have that's very strongly held? So I think sometimes we, in digital health, for example, I'll stick with that, think so much about the uh, product offering and the solution set. And sometimes when I'm sort of mentoring or speaking with colleagues and reflecting on the challenges to adoption, the issue of payment structure, who pays, it sort of comes back to that. I don't know how controversial that is, but I think that leading with understanding that as a driver to adoption is critical. Is that something that you had in mind when you set out on this venture? Is it something that you had to learn the hard way? No, and I guess that's probably why it's controversial because I really would rather try and spend a lot of time building, being strategic about thinking about the elements of a product offering that are sort of meaningful to our end users. But instead, sometimes that's not the reality of sort of day-to-day -day growing a business. So I think when I set out, I, I didn't think just how important that is. But at the end of the day, that is key to your survival is understanding how to get adoption by getting revenue. And so sort of focusing on a business model in sort of a complex reimbursement world is uh, is certainly important. Okay. Um, kind of curious because I, I feel like I've been thinking about this in the context of the 
uh, U.S. insurance system right. and um, the healthcare system here. Um, is it easier or harder in other markets? Are you looking at other markets or available in other markets? And, you know, how do you think about international availability? Our go-to-market was to start in the U.S. and then expand OUS. But I would say in single-payer systems, adoption, it can be sort of harder, let's just say, to get buy-in from the NHS in the UK, for example. But it is single-payer. And so the U.S. is so fragmented system by system, state by state, that I do think in many ways OUS can be easier. But I think also healthcare, again, coming back to the questions you asked around data security, um, PHI, HIPAA compliance, the regs are completely different in Europe with GDPR. So sometimes I think that also early on as a company, you have to sort of take a thoughtful approach to your go-to-market and not sort of be kind of reactionary to sort of random inbound opportunities, if you will. And so we have sort of systematically tried to go sort of regionally and then nationally in the states and then OUS. And part of that is also because of the regulatory data security and other uh, requirements, but also business model being pretty core to that, um, that are quite different outside the, the sort of American healthcare environment. So I'm kind of curious, do you see any future trends that you think will be impactful in healthcare or your problem area, let's say? Gosh, yes. I would say data science, innovation, AI, machine learning are something that are that are absolutely not just getting traction, but are really changing. I think changing healthcare for the better. The, the key piece is really recognizing that at the end of the day, we need to ensure that medicine stays human. And so that providers don't feel sort of disintermediated by all these sort of new sort of modes of enhanced data analytics. Um, so certainly I think they are taking hold, but we have to make sure that they're sort of empowering providers and making their clinical decision-making care delivery uh, lives easier, but that there's this human side sort of stays rather than feeling like they're being replaced by machines, if you will. Okay, well, let's leave it there. Melissa Manis, thank you for being on What's Next. Thanks so much for having me, Ryan. And thank you for listening to What's Next. We're releasing a new episode every other week, so be sure to subscribe, rate, and review. Just search for What's Next on your app of choice or go to samsungnext.com slash podcast. Next time, we'll chat with Hyper founder George Evedesoff about how his company is enabling passwordless security in the enterprise. I'm your host, Ryan Lawler. This episode of What's Next was produced by Rachel King and Laura Flynn with Claire Mullen as sound engineer for Pod People. If you have questions or suggestions, we'd love to hear from you. Get in touch on Twitter at Samsung Next or email us at podcast at samsungnext.com. Until next time.